Welcome to the Philosophy of Love podcast. Today's episode is on love and friendship. We're going to look at some recent accounts of romantic love to try and figure out what is distinct about the love that you have for a romantic partner as opposed to a friend. We'll also look at ancient Greek conceptions of love, particularly the notions of eros and philia. I'll be speaking with Michael Griffin, a professor in ancient philosophy at the University of British Columbia. A good way to get at the issues intersecting love and friendship, while canvassing two well-known theories of love, is to look at Thomas Smith's account of romantic love. Smith tries to elucidate the love appropriate to romantic couples, using a combination of Nozick and Frankfurt's accounts of love, and by focusing on the activities engaged in by couples. His resulting account is one in which each romantic partner in a couple has love for the plural object of the two of them, and each partner is in turn loved by the plural subject of the two of them. So let's spell it out further, first by looking at Nozick and then Frankfurt's accounts. Nozick distinguishes two stages of romantic love. The first being the infatuation stage, in which you can't stop thinking about the other person, and you always want to be around them, in which you're basically obsessed with the other person and the second being the more stable, companionate stage. Noza games to give an account of the second stage. The second stage is characterized by the process of forming a we with the other. Forming a we involves pooling autonomy so that each person curtails her ability to make decisions so that decisions are jointly made by the two people. It also involves pooling well-being, public face, and identity. Each person limits the extent to which these things can vary for her individually, giving more recognition and weight to the we. Nozick claims that wanting to form a we with the beloved is necessary for the second stage of romantic love. It's not a sufficient condition because plenty of non-romantic pairs may want to form a we, such as friends or business partners. Nozick's account falls into the category of union views of love, which claim that love involves forming or wanting to form a union or we. There is something intuitively appealing about the union view, though I'm not sure if the social aspects of the unification, the pooling of decision-making, for example, are necessary for romantic love. There's certainly nothing distinctly romantic about this process. Anyone we tie ourselves to in this life, our friends, our family, our business partners, we do so by pooling our identity and autonomy. Nozick's account actually seems to explain the formation of any social relationship or identity, and not just the identity you form with your beloved. In identifying with a certain culture or religion, for example, I put a floor on my reputation and well-being. If someone of my culture suffers, I to some extent suffer. If someone of my culture commits a crime, this also affects my reputation. So far, Nozick might agree, since he does claim that the desire to form a we is only necessary rather than sufficient for romantic love. Though I'm not sure to what extent it's sufficient either. What about people who try to keep their independence and distinct public identities throughout their romantic relationship? They might live apart, keep their public projects, like their jobs, separate. They might prioritize other factors in decision-making. Depending on how strong Nozick's view is, in other words, how encompassing the we is meant to be, these sorts of couples might be a counterexample. Moving on, though, let's look at Frankfurt's account. Frankfurt's account applies not just to romantic love, but all love including love of one's children and friends, 
as well as love for abstract ideals, traditions, and projects. On Frankfurt's account, there are four necessary features of love. One, a disinterested concern for the well-being or flourishing of the beloved. The well-being of the beloved is treated as an end in itself, giving the lover reason to engage in acts of loving devotion and care. Two, love is for the particular object of love and will outlast changes in the qualities of the beloved. Three, the lover takes the beloved's interests as her own. Four, one's love is in some ways involuntary. Once I love someone or something, my care and concern for them is outside of my immediate control. Moreover, this concern constrains my will in certain ways. Namely, I can't will any action that would harm my beloved, and I'm compelled to will actions that promote their well-being. This constraint is not experienced as an external imposition, however, but rather as coming from my own will. According to Smith, romantic love can be characterized by a synthesis of the two accounts. When I romantically love someone, I want to form a we with them, and, as Smith puts it, I frankfurt them, by having the sort of involuntary concern identified by Frankfurt. This straightforward synthesis is still not sufficient for romantic love, though, since friends could frankfurt each other and want to form a we. Friends, if they love each other, surely do meet Frankfurt's four conditions. One condition you might want to introduce at this point is sexual attraction. Why not distinguish friendship from love by saying that the latter involves sexual attraction? Well, there are good reasons to think that sexual attraction can come apart from romantic love. For example, a person can be in love with their romantic partner even after attraction has faded, or even if they never experienced it in the first place. Or on the other hand, one can be attracted to friends without thereby falling in love with them. Friends with benefits relationships, as they're called, provide an example in which there is friendship and even love, as well as sexual attraction, without romantic love. That at least seems to be the way that people describe these relationships. And if we're to take their reports at face value, we have to deny that romantic love is just friendship or friendly love plus sexual attraction. And so that being said, accounts of romantic love are trying to describe the care and intimacy particular to romantic love, assuming that it's qualitatively different from what you have with your friends. Going back to Smith, his account of romantic love centers on activities that have distinctive benefits when they are done by couples such as cuddling, talking about your day, and just spending time around each other. These are activities that romantic couples engage in disinterestedly, in the sense that they're intrinsically valuable to them, and not done out of any desire for a further end. When he says disinterestedly, Smith doesn't mean to deny that they're pleasurable. He says, however, that they're not done out of the desire to further any end aside from the activity itself, including the end of experiencing pleasure. This has the danger of sounding too purist, as if, when I go to the movies with my beloved, I shouldn't do it because it's fun. Smith, of course, does allow that pleasure is an important part of these activities, but he claims that pleasure is important because it lets the people know that the activity is valued, but they do it because they value it and not to experience the pleasure. So they're not done for the sake of the pleasure. Maybe the idea here is to rule out merely trivial pleasures, such as eating ice cream. Things that are intrinsically valuable just because doing them gives you pleasure, but that you don't actually care about. That the crucial activities are done disinterestedly is why Smith excludes sex from the list, since each person is presumably also trying to have an orgasm. I think he's a bit too quick in doing that. Sex need not always be done for the sake of an orgasm, 
and when it's not, I don't see any reason to exclude it. After all, it involves many activities that we do disinterestedly anyway, like cuddling, touching, and kissing our beloved. Back to the details of Smith's account. Smith rejects a straightforward Frankfurtian account of why couples engage in these activities. So, he denies that couples do these activities out of reason given by Frankfurtian love, like promoting the other's well-being or interests, because then they would not be done disinterestedly. Nor does he think that the activities are done to express the love that each person has for the other, or for themselves, or to express a desire that the other love them. Smith thinks it's plausible that we value these activities for their expressive role, but he says that what they express isn't love for the beloved, or hope that they love us back, or at least that that's not a natural way to describe what's going on. Describing the activities in such a way involves describing them as doing something for or to someone, whereas they're more naturally described as doing something with someone. And, as Smith says, it is hard to see how doing something with another can be expressive of concern one has for them or for oneself, or hope that such concern is returned. I have to admit that I'm completely baffled as to why that's hard to see. For example, you seem under the weather lately, come to my yoga class with me. That seems like a perfectly legitimate case in which I'm expressing concern for someone by doing something with them. Though Smith's point could be that there's a crucial difference between that case and my going to yoga with my beloved because we value going together. Smith claims that the activities are done out of a Frankfurtian love, but that they express not just the love that one person has for another, but rather the love that each has for the plural subject of the two of them. So the object of romantic love is also the plurality of the two people in the couple. Smith claims that this better describes a love expressed by doing activities with another person, since they express love for a plurality. The couple does these things out of a loving concern for them both. So on Smith's account, two people are a couple when they desire to form an Azikian we with one another, and Frank for each other, and the plurality of both of them expressing this by engaging in activities that are intrinsically valuable to them. One issue that Smith's account faces is that it still cannot cleanly separate friendship from romantic love. That is to say, some friends also have activities that they do because they both find them intrinsically rewarding. These are many of the same activities. Going to the movies, going for walks, chatting about your day, and so on. Smith replies that friends do not typically desire to form an Ozikian we with one another especially in the sense of pooling their identities and limiting their ability to receive individual recognition. But in the case the friends do desire to form a we and they frankfurt each other, Smith is happy to call that a romantic relationship. Despite the notion of romance in our culture, it does seem unfair to deem certain friendships romantic relationships as a theoretical corollary, especially when the people in those relationships would disagree. Maybe a more useful way to think of romantic love and friendship are as aspects of a relationship that are not mutually exclusive. After all, we do say things like, he's not only my husband, but my best friend. This seems to be the sort of categorization that ancient Greeks had in mind with the notions of eros and philia. Eros being the desirous love we have for romantic partners, and philia being the affection and care we have for friends and family, as well as romantic partners. To get a better idea of ancient Greek conceptions of love, I'm going to speak with Michael Griffin, an associate professor in classics and philosophy at the University of British Columbia. Professor Griffin's work is on ancient Greco-Roman philosophy, particularly on the intellectual traditions that flourished around the time of Plato and Aristotle, as well as later during the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. One focus of his work is on philosophical education in late antiquity, 
as well as the role of philosophy in society. Love and friendship as themes, I think, are really early and central topics in Greek literature. Uh, even in the Iliad, right off the bat, we have Achilles' kind of uh, fondness or love for Patroclus, which motivates the action of the poem because he wants to avenge the death of Patroclus, and that's the only thing that gets him off his butt and out of his tent <laughs> to save the Greeks. Um, so right away, this sort of uh, love, which was later interpreted by some in the Greek tradition as a kind of homoerotic or romantic love, uh, but was ambiguous because there's nothing quite clear about that in Homer, uh, was thought of as a major motivator for action. So from a philosophical point of view, I think right at the beginning of the Greek literary tradition, we can see love as a, an important motivator for action um, and something that really deserves analysis in the human condition. And that goes on straight through lyric poetry. The uh, uh, philosophical tradition, I guess, that we might think of as starting with Socrates, really doing something like a kind of more or less trying to define our terms and think rigorously about what the terms are in which we define our actions, especially virtue terms for Socrates, like justice, courage, uh, wisdom, um, self-control, and so on. Uh, once we get into that sort of tradition where Socrates is asking people to think about these sort of cultural associations that they've just assumed from the older poetic tradition, like Homer's idea of love, we can really sort of start to see some interesting back and forth about the idea. So if, if we started with Socrates uh, in the fifth century, uh, for what we know about Socrates from later uh, Socratics who wrote down his conversations like uh, Plato and Xenophon, uh, there's a really interesting sort of paradox right at the beginning, and this is going to get us into Eros and Philia. Uh, Socrates never quite in Plato says, I know that I know nothing, uh, or I know nothing at all. But he does uh, say something like, uh, I know that my wisdom isn't worth very much, that I don't have very much wisdom, and that is a kind of wisdom to have this kind of intellectual humility, except that there is one sort of domain-specific expertise I have, which is ta erotica, or things to do with love. Uh, and he, uh, in, when he originally introduces this idea, uh, it looks like it could be a pun, because the Greek word for asking questions is erotan. So it could be my one area of expertise is asking questions, punning on love. It's a sort of cool theme. But in a lot of the early Platonic dialogues, Socrates just looks like he's, uh, he loves going after boys and uh, flirting, and he's a very sort of playful character who lives up to the even non-punning sense that he's, he's pretty good at this sort of thing. So in one of the early dialogues, uh, the Lysis, uh, he starts to talk about the art of love and try to explain to someone else how to go about being seductive or attractive, uh, and that starts the whole Platonic tradition of exploring what love is. Um, so that sort of led us up to Plato in general as a theme. But in Plato and Aristotle, uh, I think we can start to see them try to pick apart uh, these two different ideas of love, eros and philia, which were in these earlier Socratic dialogues just sort of uh, a bit more of a playful uh, thought. It's kind of what is, what is love like or what is love about? So uh, in Plato's... Uh, in Plato's dialogues, Eros is much more of a focus, arguably. So in the Symposium, most famously, 
so much of the dialogue is devoted to a series of uh, hymns in honor of love, where love here is Eros. Uh, and initially, some of the characters talk about how erotic attraction or desire uh, could be a motivator for virtue, for behaving, behaving well, because one wants one's beloved to uh, respect and appreciate what you do. Uh, and this all leads up to this really famous soaring speech of Diotima, uh, prophetess at the end to Socrates, where she converts this idea of love uh, as a romantic attraction to other individual human beings into the idea of uh, desire for really the property of beauty that could be in a human being, but also could be in a piece of music or a painting or a way of life or a culture or a branch of knowledge like pure mathematics all the way to beauty itself, the form of beauty. So there's this sort of ascent of passionate desire that leads to the philosopher as the lover par excellence, who is in love with beauty and so in love with knowledge. Um, then if we just left Plato there for the moment with Eros seen as a kind of erotic, passionate desire, uh, which can lead up to true beauty or knowledge, Aristotle, especially in the Nicomachean Ethics in uh, books eight and nine, explores uh, the other sort of keyword, philia, uh, as a slightly different interpretation, uh, this one being about, well, sometimes it's translated friendship. Uh, but it's a little bit more complex than that because a romantic relationship could have philia too. So this is a, the intimacy that lovers might feel for one another, the trust and mutual care, um, which is not at all uh, exclusive, you could say, in the sense that the, someone could have eros for their partner as well. They could have eros in other ways too, in addition to philia. But when Aristotle's looking at philia, he breaks it down into a kind of friendship or love in this sense uh, for someone uh, because they bring you pleasure of some kind, could be intellectual, emotional, physical pleasure, social pleasure, uh, philia for someone because they uh, in some way are useful, you're fond of them because they're really useful to have around, they make you good networking or something. Uh, and then thirdly, philia for someone uh, for their own sake because, it, because they're just good and you want the best for them and you want them to have eudaimonia, well-being, or flourishing for their own sake, totally separate from what's good for you. And it's that third kind that he thinks is really philia. So if we took stock of that so far, we've got from Homer the idea that love in general can be a major motivator for action, down through Socrates' sort of playful, well, I'm a master of love in some sense, but is it really asking questions? To Plato, here's Eros, passionate desire for an individual could be translatable into the passionate desire for beauty and knowledge that the drives the philosopher to Aristotle, let's explore philia and these three ways, love for pleasure for me, love for utility for me, or love for your own sake because it's good. Uh, so that really is a kind of bare outline of those two, eros and philia. Then we can just toss in at the end, a couple of hundred years later, the importance of agape in the New Testament. When someone like St. Paul writing about the love of God or the way that love can be transcendent somehow in motivating charity and altruism in human action feels like he needs another word. These two, after all, are so storied in the Greek tradition by now. You can't talk about philia without thinking of how Aristotle breaks it down. You can't talk about eros without thinking both of the great literary tradition of erotic passion and Plato philosophically. So agape offers 
uh, another sort of lexical cluster that's separate enough, I think, that he can use that to talk about this altruistic or charitable concept of love. So is Eros just, is it an affective or passionate type of force or, or feeling? Is it like a feeling? I think um, in the ordinary uh, Greek sense, uh, to say someone is Erastes, a lover, or Iran has erotic desire uh, is really to name a feeling, uh, something that's experienced. Um, and, and in the sort of uh, earlier Greek literary tradition, might not be up to them, might not really be fully voluntary, which is an interesting way of picking it apart, and certainly might have only a small sort of cognitive dimension. But for Plato, I think it becomes more complex because he wants to turn Eros into really the, the name of a relation that could be uh, maybe empty of uh, affective, non-cognitive, emotional content, that it's possible to sort of sublimate somehow this relation into something that has pure beauty as its, as its target, at least on one interpretation. On a, a Plato's also been a source of so much uh, mystical thought in the West, where the idea of just ecstatic uh, is hardly that the ecstasy of love for the form is not devoid of feeling either. But I think you could make the argument that it, uh, in Plato's hands, becomes less of just a feeling and more of a kind of abstract relation between things. Um, so before Plato, there is this understanding that Eros waxes and wanes and that it's kind of unpredictable. And then Plato introduces this idea that it's something more stable and more noble and maybe not attached to one's shifting, changing dispositions. I think so, and I, I think um, partly for Plato that's driven by the nature of the object or the target of Eros that uh, he, being after all Plato, draws this strong distinction between uh, parent targets of Eros which are changing and they have a sort of calm presence of opposites, so they might be beautiful and ugly at the same time. They might be beautiful from this point of view, but not from that. They might be beautiful uh, at this time, but not at that, or to this person, and not to that one. So for those reasons, th th that for him is the, the source of the flux or the sort of uncertainty or unpredictability of Eros, whereas the source of its constancy and stability is that its real target is this this sort of property or feature that is eternal, constant, objective, and real in people or paintings or music or anything like that, that we can start to get at by contrasting them. But I think it's important to distinguish that from philia, both for Plato and for Aristotle, in the sense that uh, wherever... The, I think the assumption for, for them and for the Greek tradition in general is that uh, eros may, so far as it is a sort of kind of erotic desire for other human beings, it may go all over the place in a lifetime, understandably. And th I think there's a lot more, uh, certainly for men, it's a sort of sexist society where I think the same liberty is extended, not extended to women as to men, but for men the assumption is that this kind of erotic desire might be quite uh, unpredictable. But that's completely separate from, even as Eros is sort of floating around like that, philia 
the sense of intimacy and trust and love in a relationship or in a few close relationships or in a family might be unaffected. And for Aristotle, say, that kind of philia could be noble in the sense that it's not for you, it's for the sake of the genuine good of another person that you're in a relationship with. So it would be possible for a Greek love theorist to suppose that fluctuating arrows for all kinds of different people, or for that matter, paintings or pieces of music, uh, wouldn't in any way uh, reduce the quality of a very genuine, noble sense of philia, trust, care, mutual benefit uh, for another party's own sake in a relationship or a few close relationships. So philia is more like the the dispositional, long-term habits and actions that keep a relationship together. And maybe the affective dimension of that as well. Really good point that philia is a bit more of a disposition, uh, sort of a trait kind of thing that uh, lasts, a relationship that lasts, whereas eros can be quite a, a bit quicker, can just, like you say, be more effective and more in the moment. Yeah. But it cuts across relationships, so I have both eros and philia in various relationships, and they can, they're different dimensions of the, of the feelings I have for someone, or rather than different types of love. And is there any, like, what are the different, how does Eros relate to philia? Is there this idea that my erotic love for somebody would affect my philia or facilitate my forming philia for them or something like that? Well, I could answer that in two parts, I feel like. One, <laughs> um, for looking at Aristotle, and uh, I know we're just sort of focusing on a few texts, but if we imagine Aristotle and Anacomachean Ethics 8 and 9, um, talking about uh, these three kinds of philia. I, I'm fond of this person or thing, let's say person, because they bring me pleasure. I'm fond of this person because they're useful, or I'm fond of this person for their own sake and for their own good. Well, obviously, one really easy case is that I, I develop a fondness for this person because I have some sort of erotic satisfaction from this relationship, which is a relationship of pleasure, which is fine, Aristotle would say, no problem, but that could be totally separate from uh, philia type 3, from the genuine sort of intimate relationship for the other person's own good. Yet, uh, there's nothing to say that a relationship can't sort of progress in such a way that I, I might start out saying, this brings me a lot of pleasure, but then this relationship that brings me pleasure can develop in such a way that I realize I'm very fond of this person for their own sake now. Even if that pleasure were gone, even if they were no longer pleasant or, for that matter, useful, <laughs> I would still <laughs> feel that this is a wonderful human being for their own sake and I want them to flourish. Um, the other part I was going to mention uh, is the sort of, since Plato's unusual in the sort of special Platonic sense, there's a really interesting debate, I think, relevant to that question, uh, which really started with uh, an important Platonic scholar in the 20th century named Gregory Vlastos. Uh, and Vlastos made a strong case that an individual human being just couldn't be an object of a true object of Eros, let alone philia for Plato. That for Plato, really, that kind of individual relationship was just a kind of mirage of this, of course, higher sort of appreciation for a form. But uh, there's been a, a lot of interest. So that started a whole back and forth, and there's been a lot of counter-argument. My own sense is 
that I, I don't think that's true. Plato never writes like that. He never writes like in, uh, so if I fall in love and then in that relationship sort of come to see uh, something, some sort of form of beauty, it's not so much for Plato, I think, that you're looking away from the person at the beginning, but you're looking deeper and understanding that person more. So the, the one way of thinking that you might say, well, how does that relate to Plato's sort of metaphysical outlook and his analysis of what persons are and this, these other questions, there's a, another debate in the Platonic tradition about whether there are forms in Plato's sense of forms of individual people. So in addition to saying there's a form of beauty, there's a form of uh, these mathematical objects, there's a form of these basic laws of physics, are there also forms of uh, Michaelness or Thomasness or Jimness or Sarahness or Melissaness or whatever. And if you think there are in some sense, and they're sort of cores of bundles of forms that make up the real person, then coming back to your, your question in the Platonic context, I think you could say uh, that this sort of uh, erotic uh, desire for that real sort of true form or a cluster of forms is completely legitimate for Plato and can target an individual and so is quite compatible with the sort of love for your own sake Aristotelian noble notion and if you you could sort of just leave all the metaphysical language aside and say uh, yes this person here whoever it might be uh, this person is uh, worthy of um, this kind of passionate or erotic uh, desire or attraction completely separate from uh, what qualities happen to be participated. And that wouldn't seem necessarily so strange because you might say this person could lose a lot of qualities, physical, mental, psychological. They could be in a different place at a different time. They could have, uh, you know, in different possible worlds, all sorts of different traits. But this is sort of getting into rigid designation in some sense, but this person here, this, uh, regardless of all those qualities, I would still love them. One thing I would sort of, now having said that, I'll just hedge it slightly, because <laughs> it's all, uh, so one thing that would be important to say is that Eros for Plato is by definition the relationship that is held to beauty, to Tokalon, to the beautiful itself. So you could, at, at least as I would understand it, um, you couldn't take beauty away from that unique individual and still have eros for that unique individual. That would no longer make sense. But you could have something like Aristotelian philia for their own sake, for the sake of that individual. But if there was no such thing as beauty somewhere in that bundle around that unique individual, then it wouldn't be eros. The opposite problem then that you get is we also want to be loved for the qualities that we have. It would be kind of strange if someone said, well, you could change entirely yes. everything and I would still love you. Yes. Well, then it would be kind of, well, what exactly is it that you're loving? You know, then it's got almost arbitrary again. Um, so there's that, yeah, there's that question. Well, if you, if you do peel apart Eros and Philia, then maybe you could put it like this. If I, I could say to somebody, you know, I, I, uh, have worked sort of hard for these these qualities that I think are fair objects of eros. So uh, maybe uh, maybe I'm exercising so that I'm attractive in some sense. You could imagine. Well, if I'm doing that, then just as you say, that's a, a not morally arbitrary. That's important. I'm making that choice, and I'm making it to be attractive to someone I care about. Say, well, if that's so, 
totally fair, as I was saying. That is because Eros has beauty as an object, and I'm working on participating the form of beauty more. But I can still also allow that uh, there is a core, a sort of individual core that picks me out, that is the right object of this kind of noble and unselfish philia that's being described. So I think I could consistently say, I'm working pretty hard so that I can be a good object of Eros, but at the same time, I expect that even if in the possible situations were completely different and I developed very different traits, I could still, I'd totally let myself go. Huh. Maybe I wouldn't be an object of Eros anymore. Maybe that would collapse because I failed to participate in beauty as much as I had, but that wouldn't change the fact that I was still the same person. And so uh, someone could still, in the same way, want me to flourish, want the good for me for my own sake, in Aristotle's sense, quite apart from any of these other qualities. So I think peeling apart Eros and Philia as the sort of the relevant way of carving love actually helps with that problem in practice. So the way I participate in the form of beauty is through these other qualities which I um, possess or which I uh, nurture in myself or something. Okay. You learn a language, you go to the gym, uh, you uh, read novels to sort of become socially empathic and so on. These are all cultivating certain traits and qualities which are in some sense participating in the form of beauty uh, from Plato's point of view but on the sort of semantic interpretation I was suggesting from later Platonism, uh, that none of that has to affect the core of who or what you are. Um, and as far as philia goes, you could deserve that whatever, whatever you do and whatever other traits you participate in qualitatively. From Professor Griffin's description of Eris and philia, it seems that the love that continues through change in the qualities of the beloved, or in other words, the love that lasts, is philia. Does that mean that the companionate stage of romantic love is much like friendship, and that at this point there's nothing distinctive about romantic love? Maybe once the infatuation stage is over, there isn't something distinct and special about romantic love, or rather, nothing we can cleanly separate with necessary and sufficient conditions. Maybe the difference between romantic love and friendly love is going to be more blurry and based on a multitude of contributing factors like shared history, time, intimacy, sex, exclusivity, the seriousness of the relationship, and so on. Our difficulty, then, in distinguishing romantic love from friendship in our accounts of love isn't so problematic, since they're not that different after all.